Ventures, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with homemaker and writer Tara Ann Theek. I came across Tara through friend of the podcast, Alex Kashuta, and her podcast, Subversive. So thank you, Alex, for that. In that episode, Tara spoke about children, motherhood, and the concept of children themselves and what they bring to society outside of simply repopulating the earth. Tara worked with children for 15 years before she decided to have children of her own and has five to boot, so she definitely has her hands full at the moment. In this episode, we discuss motherhood, what women need from men to help them be good mothers and vice versa, the problems facing children today when it comes to their mental health in Tara's opinion and how we provide solutions, not just shout at proverbial clouds. We also talk about the concept of delayed adulthood, fatherlessness what MTV's Teen Mum and 16 and Pregnant Era did for how women view themselves and motherhood and lots of other cultural topics. So this is how my check-in with Tara Anthik went. Tara, welcome to the Just Check-In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. When I heard you on Alex Kishuta's Friend of the Pod, Subversive Podcast, I was really keen to bring your story onto the podcast for my listeners. So first of all, I know you are a very busy woman, but how are you, first of all? I'm doing well. It's Thanksgiving week here in America, so um, we're busy. Mm. (laughs) We're busy, but I think it's a good time to also enjoy things as opposed to Halloween and Christmas. So trying to be still and enjoy things. Lots of food is going to be prepared very shortly, I imagine. Yes, yes, quite a lot. Especially the size of your family. But I'm one of four, you've got five, so you beat me. (laughs) And we like like to bake and cook around here. So we like the kids to see us doing things. Oh, lovely. So that involves constantly mess everywhere all the time. We've got loads of messy topics and interesting topics to speak about on this podcast, Tara. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? I hope so. You'll find out (laughs) if I was ready or not. I want to dive straight in and talk about your mental health journey to start the podcast, Tara. And it's going to be a very simple podcast. It's going to be just this topic and then a mental health chat at the end. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Can you take me back to early life, teenage years, and were there any early mental health experiences, if any? Who's the Tara we meet here? I wonder how my answer to this is going to uh, <laughs> to diverge from other people on your podcast. <laughs> my mother was always very interested in mental health. So we heard a lot about personality disorders and depression. You heard about the dark side. <laughs> not the not the just exercise daily and do some meditation. <laughs> like for a small child, it can be overwhelming to think about things you don't understand mm. yet. And we moved when I was about seven years old, and that was pretty pretty traumatic for me. 
I went from having a big family that we saw all the time to being very isolated with just me and my sister and my dad worked a lot. My parents were not happy with the move. And you sometimes only understand how strenuous something was on your mental health years later. So grownups will ask you how you're doing and you say, okay. And then 20 years later, you realize, oh my gosh, that was absolutely atrocious. And it, it marked my personality for so long, you know, <laughs> like it made me an outsider and comfortable with being alone, but also uncomfortable and a people pleaser. All of those things take a long time. And in some ways, my, my mom's focus on mental health was almost a block for me to be able to see it because I would say, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Don't try to psychoanalyze me. I don't want to be made a patient. Did and you see mental health then because of how she educated you as just the severe end of the spectrum, so to speak? The severe end of the spectrum. And I think she was sort of inclined to the therapeutic cult of victimhood. Okay. So there wasn't a sense of responsibility of... Um, Here's how we get better over- and now we take action. And then, yeah, yeah, it was less yes, of Yes, yeah. it was just very passive and, you know, a, a pill is the answer. And I, I really rubbed me the wrong way. And so, you know, years later, you start realizing, oh, I I definitely have problems, <laughs> you know? Of course I do. E- everyone does, but um, I don't want to deal with mine in the way I was raised to. So I here I am aware of mental health, and yet I've been blocking my own understanding of my own mental health for so long. So now I have to reapproach it, but come up with a whole new framework to understand it. You spoke there about the move being really traumatic. And I think it's something that adults can sometimes forget about how traumatic moving schools, even in a local area, can be for children, let alone, you know, other side of the country or or however far you went. You said you went from kind of seeing your family, which was very big all the time, to being very isolated. We'll get to this in a bit. But do you think that had any bearing on your desire to have a large family? Absolutely. I loved going back to see my grandparents. So My grandmother got sick with Alzheimer's when I was in middle school, and my dad and I would go up almost every other weekend, and I would see this big extended family, and for a little while in my, like, I don't know what to call them, my very liberal late teen years, I didn't want to have any kids. And then when my grandmother died, it just clicked. I was like, I want to have eight kids. (laughs) She had eight, and this is wonderful. Like, this is what I've been missing out on, you know, like, this experience of being old and passing from the world and having so many people be there with you to hold your hand mm. and guide you through this. There was nothing like mm. that. And all my preconceptions came tumbling down. Well, this is something that I'm sure you'll be aware of, Tara, but Louise Perry talks about that arc of maiden, mother, matriarch. And obviously there's loads of differences in between and there's journeys that every woman goes on, but that's the name of her podcast. And I'm sure you're aware of Louise Perry's work. Is that a route that you felt you crystallized in your mind after your grandmother sadly passed? Yes. I. It was actually 20 years ago this week that we had her funeral. It was just a very emotional time where I realized that I was on a path that now I didn't know how I would get off of it. Mm. Like how, how do you go into academia and become a mother of a large family. And the path to motherhood seemed incredibly uphill, so far away. I know that seems funny because obviously you just have to meet it. You can just meet a guy and have a baby. But I wish it was I that easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's not that easy. No. Um, there's a lot of choices it takes to make that choice. And we live in a culture of not making choices. Mm. You just get on this wheel and you're just passively pushed to the next step. 
or and delay so the choice to, to keep delaying the choice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, I went through my twenties just very confused and in a lot of despair about how to make this choice. And only when I got really hard on myself about pulling back from all these distractions and bribes you get, was I able to say, okay, now I can go this way. Mm. You worked with children in your full-time job for 15 years before becoming a mother yourself. So what did that period teach you about yourself and, and being around children constantly? It taught me how much a person can be wrong. Oh, We trade in opinions. Our whole culture is just full of opinion mm. after opinion. And the young teenager who's taking care of kids thinks she knows everything. <laughs> and when I was in my early 20s, I thought I knew everything. And I would, you know, I liked the parents I worked for, but I was like, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. And then you get to a point where you're like, oh, I understand that that's totally different. Like there are things I would, I, I was a good mm -hmm. caretaker, but I mean, things that I wouldn't be so abrupt about now, or I would be a little more cautious about explaining to a child because you're really starting to see the day and night connections that are unfolding. Mm. So I, th I think that long career, you learn to put so many theories away. Mm. You have to learn by practice. And no 15-year-old really knows what it's like to practice motherhood. And the child-free don't always know, which is why it can be frustrating to hear their opinions so often when they have very little experience with children. Mm. And you said there about the patience that you needed and the investment and the time and these are all skills that you need as a parent, but it sounds as if you had to develop those rather than them being particularly innate. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, when I'm when you're 18, you know, or 19, like you want to go do things, you know, you're having fun with a kid, but it's not like you can bring a kid out to a, you shouldn't bring a kid out to a bar. You want to to move and feel things. And we don't have a lot of room for that in our culture for people to be creative in their own homes and making things. We're very sedentary. And I think young people just have a tremendous amount of energy. Mm. They want to get out of their body and a kid drags you down, <laughs> slows you down enormously. And we can't put those things together. And so you have to slowly learn to match a child's speed with patience and not just do that for 20 minutes, but to do that hour after hour. Mm. You know, you talked about energy there. And I, I worked with children for three consecutive summers when I was uh, at a summer camp local to my area. So I started there when I was 17, literally a child to be working there. And then I finished when I was 20, 21. And I completely agree with you. The one thing you do need is energy, but you also need to be able to recharge. And that's sometimes hard when you've got children and multiple children because they're not going to give you that time to recharge unless they're asleep, literally. How do you no, maintain no. the balance then? At first it was difficult and now I've reached a solution where I go to bed early and I wake up around 4.30. Wow. I have to get up very early. Um, It doesn't always happen that way because my children can get up, you have a bad night, you're exhausted one night, you know, but I shoot for that goal because that is the only way for me to have a mental space where I can be energetic mm. in my own way without just having to give and give and give from the moment I wake up. Mm. If I don't do that, then I have a bad day. Like I'm exhausted. And then you're just giving and giving and you're not all the things you care about and are interested in, they just fall by the wayside. And that's not good for your kids. Routine is vital, basically. Yes. And it's where I go. I mean, I go to you know, I'm, I'm working on some pieces about rhythms and holidays. And while working on those pieces, I get ideas and then I bring them to my kids. 
you know, I'm like, okay, we're going, it was Martin Mass and Remembrance Day. We're going to do a lantern walk. And it helps them. You know, if I, if I hate saying if the mother isn't happy, no one's happy. Happy wife, happy life. (laughs) You know, it's important for me that my husband goes out to do his writing. Mm. When he comes home and he feels like he's written something that he's proud of, it's wonderful. We want our children to not just grow up to have children. We want our children to grow up to be creative contributors to the Mm. world. And so it's so important to have Mm. that time. When it comes to the decision and then the birth of your first child, so how did that one initially change your worldview, your life and your mental before we discuss all the learnings you took from all the births after that? (laughs) (laughs) We knew that we wanted to have a lot of children. My husband was, he comes from us, we both come from small families, but my worldview was a, a little bit shocking to him, but he was, he's a very good, relaxed mm, personality. He adapted. <laughs> yes, he's, he's adapted. He smiles a lot. Very Sounds like my mom and dad to be fair when, when my mom wanted to have a lot of kids. And I was like, yep, okay, <laughs> sounds good, right? Yep, that's right, okay, exactly. right, yes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but... You know, that first child, you, you're so free to do so much stuff still. We would put our daughter in the car and go on a long trip to Michigan when my husband had a work trip. You know, you can do a lot of things. And I think it can be almost easy to not notice how dramatically your life has changed. Mm. And I know that may sound funny, but with the first child, like we went to the park every weekend. We went to restaurants with her. I would go pick up my husband early from work. It was great. And then when you have the second and third, you're getting multiple children in and out of a car. You can't do that anymore. And I think that could be hard, but we were so excited about turning our home into a place where we would make things. I think a lot of our big decisions came before we had children and we we left LA and we moved to rural Pennsylvania. I mean, that's probably a good decision looking at how LA is now. <laughs> that's what, that was the decision. <laughs> and you sort of make your you make your peace with, okay, like we don't want our home to be a hotel. So as much fun as it was going out and doing things, now we're making things here and it's really exciting to come home. And so with that first child, we were still going out to do things, but it was exciting to sort of start feeling like we were going to be developing capacities that kept us at home Mm. more. Better gardeners, better bakers, better cooks, better... I'm one of four siblings, Tara. You can probably guess where I uh, place in that group of siblings because of how loud I am. And I can probably speak for my siblings here as well when I say that we were quite unique growing up. You know, other one of fours were quite uncommon. It wasn't rare, but it was uncommon that you found other kids who are one of four. One or two, definitely. One of three, usually the way, but not one of four. And now I think we're increasingly getting to the stage where even children themselves are a big decision and sometimes are being avoided, let alone one, two, three, four. You have five. So do you feel even extra special as a family now? It's like a black and identity um, badge. Think- one of five for your kids. <laughs> so it's definitely an identity that a lot of people are repelled by. Really? Um, oh, I mean, at least at least in America, there are people who, the first thing they say is you're crazy. They can say it with a, a biting to it, you know, a, a disapproval, unfortunately. But I don't, I don't know if I feel special so much as I feel responsible. Mm. I was at church the other day and I was talking with a woman and she tapped me on the shoulder before it was time to go. And she just said, I just want to say that you brought a lot of life into this world. <laughs> and I was like, literally. 
Absolutely. That's a big responsibility. <laughs> and this morning I was talking with someone at the coffee shop and she said, when she found out I had five, she said, but you're so normal. And I was like, oh, oh, I think that's good. But what does that mean that so few people who are normal are having large families? Like, Do you think there was a class element mean- there? Kind of thinking that, I don't know, that seems a little bit like there was some sort of underlying yeah. thing there. There's so much confusion about family size right now with only the, the very rich or the very mm. poor having large families. It makes me just feel this huge responsibility of my children treasuring what they have, but also being normal and not feeling completely weird or comparing themselves to people whose parents can give them more individual attention. Mm. It's special, but it's like anything special. There's a lot of responsibility that goes of with Of course. It. We're going to touch on this later in the pod, especially when it comes to what you said earlier about child-free versus involuntary childlessness, which I've spoken to quite a few people about, including two advocates about the issue. So do you ever think about where your life would be or who you'd be or how you feel if you hadn't have had children with your husband? Certainly. Before we had our first child, I thought all the time, what if we can't have a child? That is my eternal fear, to be fair. fair. Yes. It's I thought for years, you know, I want this big family and now we're finally on the path to it. What if it doesn't happen? Mm. And, you know, I was 31 when I had her first, almost 32. And he was 33 when she was born. But for me, when I look at this, I think I would have been in much more despair if I hadn't become comfortable with the sort of life I wanted to lead when me and my husband got together. The sort of crucial change had already happened. And we both felt like if if we can't have children, of course, we'll be sad about that. But we want to be building relationships and warmth and giving to others. And that's going to happen no matter what. If I had 10 kids, which I would love, I don't know what I would do, but I would love it. That's literally um, cheaper by the dozen almost. <laughs> that was my grandmother's dream. She wanted a dozen. Wow. She was very that is a baker's, literally. <laughs> I wouldn't be any more a mom if I had 10 than if I had one. If I didn't have one, I would be working to give that maternal instinct to somehow in another mm. way. And I think a great deal of the unhappiness we have is that people are confused about their nurturing or protecting capabilities. And so they become inverted. And that's where you get the very, very sad phenomenon of like the dog parent. You know, there's nothing wrong with having an animal, but there can be a fixation on a pet, which can become pathological. And that's because that instinct is not being addressed or nurtured. It's just kind of in a dead loop. Mm. And I think when people know, okay, I can't have a kid, but I can do this and I'm going to do it with love, that fertility comes to the fore anyway. Mm. It just comes in a different form. Uh, Just building on that, I saw a very depressingly comedic but apt tweet quite a while ago now. And it said, people who had kids get dogs. People who got dogs get plants. And people who get plants, I can't remember now, but it was just, oh no, that was it. And children are a luxury item. (laughs) and i was like yep that Um, sounds about right (laughs) you know the thing that's so insidious about it is that when people are making these choices from their own free will knowingly it can be a good thing but so many people are being pushed because they can't find a mate because they aren't being given economic opportunities Mm -hmm. to build a home or a family 
and the frustration then isn't addressed. You know, it just sits there and, and, and becomes bitter and eats away. And so being able to know, okay, I'm being blocked here, but I'm still going to try to channel this however I can then I think you overcome the crucial step between not having children. Mm, it's a ticking time bomb as I spoke to Stephen Shaw, who I'm sure you may be aware of. He did a depressingly, but one of the best films I've ever seen called Birth Gap about this. And I just feel like it's a ticking time bomb for so many people. No, what's Birth, oh, birth, birth Gap? Gap is, it. Oh, Birth Gap, you'd very much enjoy it. So he basically analyzes the replacement rate across the world. And it, he calls it the Birth Gap about people having children versus not having children and part one talks about the kind of academic angle of it and he kind of plots a map where countries like japan and south korea are basically fucked no one is having kids and they will be finished economically in the country in 34 years if they're not careful but then he also interviewed loads and loads of involuntarily childless people specifically men uh, but also a lot of women and my god it was some of the most difficult things i've had to watch so yeah i think this is going to be a massive ticking time bomb on it for sure but anyway, uh, let's let's move on to studier climbs. <laughs> Children's mental health. Now, I speak to a lot of people about how we can help the mental health of young men and boys, Tara. And I don't know how many boys you have, if you have any at all. You've got three boys. Two boys. Okay. And you said to me off air, if children's mental health struggles aren't addressed, those become adult struggles. So tell me how that timeline occurs and your perspective on where we are with young people's mental health. Because there's a lot of talk about education, but I'm always advocating it needs to be the right education so we're seeing an institutionalization of young children and a denial of freedom of opportunity to create things pathologizing their existence Mm. um, especially for boys i feel very lucky that i'm the parent of the boys that i have my toddler boy is wildly forceful and he's the kind of child that another parent would immediately try to drug and that's unacceptable to me. You know, he has a different way of learning. But if he was to start being drugged as soon as he hit kindergarten, that's going to become an adult problem. And that ha- it happens very frequently in America. At wow. least. These children, especially boys, are not being given space to be boys. They're being space to be passive, to be consumers of information, not explorers, not creators. They're not allowed to roam free. Everything they do is very tightly micromanaged. When they do sports, it is not, you know, a bunch of boys playing ball themselves, but it's a group of grown-ups, often women, who are steering them along these channels, very, you know, creating and setting the ambiance and the tone. The children don't get to create their own spaces or navigate and build freedom and responsibility. And this creates anxiety mm, boys will sense they, that as well adolescents and young adults adults have no idea how to go out and engage they've been told that you know if they break from this very tightly conformist way of behaving that things will fall apart and so the one approved way to get by is to become an activist mm. so they find meaning in activism and that just sets them on a path of <laughs> continued anger <laughs> And inability to create and just, you know, lashing out in frustration, taking medication to deal with their problems and an inability to really encounter reality. They're not allowed to have that risk when they're children. And that just accelerates as they get older. Mm. I talk a lot now about the risks of pathologizing normal emotions in children and not chucking all this mental health content at them straight away. We need to be teaching them how to regulate their emotions, develop meaningful and good relationships and friendships but we can't be chucking all these diagnoses and all these mental health conditions at them because they just need to be kids because kids will take on 
something which they mildly identify with because they think, oh, that sounds like me. Then maybe I have that. Like we need to step back and stop the basically over psychologification, whatever. That's not even a word, but you know what I mean? We need to just stop this. (laughs) What, What are the solutions here, especially for young boys? Unfortunately, one solution which is so difficult is dealing with older women. Um, you can so say that. I, I, I can't. <laughs> I can say it, but I, I hate saying it because so many boys are in schools and surrounded by administrators who are limiting and constraining their ability to be people. You, know, you go into a field like psychiatry dominated by women at the moment. And what are you going to do? You're going to get labels of um, oppositional defiant disorder for any child who doesn't want to be in a chair. You know, that's it's a way of encountering people and female power right now is females who do this are rewarded with more power. It's very frustrating, but that's how it is. So I think one of the best ways to start dealing with it is getting more men in positions where they can nurture young teachers. Chronic. I mean, I'm probably sure it's true in the U S but there's a chronic lack of teachers in primary school or early school in your, in your case. But also, it's getting to that point in, in secondary school as well for us. So high school and middle school. And if the boys, what? sorry, and just quickly as well, if the young men start seeing teaching as a purely female profession, we're in big trouble. We're in huge trouble. I mean, my great teachers were men. I'm sorry to say, to, my great teachers in elementary school are females. My great teachers in high school were men. And I think at least one of those men helped change my life and made me work harder in a way no female teacher had ever asked of me. Everybody benefits from male leadership at a young age and denying that has catastrophic consequences. So if we can't repair a marriage, at least more men can try to be in a position to provide nurturing and entering these fields. Mm. Um, hopefully, hopefully psychologically stable men, <laughs> but definitely more men. I can't remember the last time I saw a male principal. It's been so long. You know, it's great to have women in a lot of these fields, but it's really imbalanced right now. And I just think men being present to sort of pull back the female need to over nurture, over steer them is important because men will give that little bit of extra mm. room for a kid. And that, that room is critical. You, know, you need the balance, don't you? You need the balance in everything. If there's one if there's one sex that's massively disproportionately, you know, over represented, whether it's male or female in any profession... It might create a lot of positives or negatives, but it will, it will, it will definitely have an impact. <laughs> yes, it will definitely have an impact, and it has it has so far. When I try to think of more things we could do to help children and their mental health, you know, that's probably the big one because a lot of this is created by adults. Mm. In terms of other decisions people can make, I think pulling back from social media as much as possible, though, for young boys who need to communicate with each other i know gaming is huge so but i always say me and my mates used to game at each other's houses we didn't used to game like separately in headset like we did that in more towards high school sort of 14 15 16 but the early days i'd go around to someone's house and play it just the social interaction okay. and then you go outside you play yeah. football for a bit or you do something else like that's better for me because I'm never going to be like, oh my God, video games are bad because I love video games. But you need to have the balance. The yeah. social interaction needs to be not just your son playing for four hours on his own on a headset. Like go to someone's house. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think getting kids together in that way, again, that's unsupervised time as opposed to just being in youth sports, which is so intensely supervised and then coming home and being on your headset. Mm. That play with another kid face-to-face is huge, but it is unfortunately increasingly hard to... You also spoke about a lack of rituals that kids now have growing up. Can you just tell me what you meant by that? Are these more rites of passage or is it something else that they're lacking? 
There's a great book by Byung-Chul Han, which I really recommend called The Disappearance of Ritual. It's something I think everyone is facing. And it's a huge part in, in all of what we're talking about is there's this collapse in faith and meaning. We're living in a very secular materialist time that's inducing despair and makes everything arbitrary. So there's no reason to do anything. Marriage is just a piece of paper. It's just, it's arbitrary. You know, you can celebrate Christmas any day of the week. You know, like, are my employer's not going to give it off to me, so I'll celebrate this day. Time and space are increasingly rendered meaningless. And it makes the things we do seem seem like a lark. Yes, like live yes, action yeah, got you. Thing. We're just kind of pretending that any of this is actually important. And so I think giving kids a sense of a tradition that's not just nostalgic, that's not just like, we're doing this because our grandparents did it, that's why. But it's like, no, we're doing this and we're going to talk about why we're doing this. That is so important. And it doesn't matter if your neighbors are doing it or not. Giving your kids a sense that like time is real and we're going to mark this time and here's why gives a child a sense of living in a universe with meaning. And if there's a universe with meaning, then there's something out there. There's hope, you, there's faith, no matter how bad or how dark it gets, you can live a life of meaning and create things and find goodness as opposed to just having to accept whatever you're being sold mm. today. There's many ways you can go about doing it. It can start with whatever kind of ritual somebody wants, whether it's like in our family, we're going to do Sunday night family dinner, whether it's, you know, on Friday, we're always going to go to the cemetery to visit, you know, my, my mother's grave or whether it's bigger, whether it's like a looking into holy days of the past and saying, you know, this day has been forgotten, but it really speaks to us. And we want to remember on this day, certain things. You spoke earlier about children learning these behaviors or these dangerous traits from adults and the current conversation online i don't think it's ever been as toxic you know there's a phrase in there's a slang term in in england head loss and i just think the world's just got collective head loss right now because you've got you know whether it's incels versus radfems gender criticals versus tras conservatives versus democrats men versus women in online dating the list goes on and on and on the polarization is just so extreme when young people are seeing these as the barometer for healthy in air quotes, adult conversations, we're not going to be setting them up for success in how to critically argue themselves and have healthy debates and conversations too. No, not at all. We're reverting into this very Menachian all or nothing dualism. Mm. People are good or they're bad. They're evil or they're saviors. And nobody can really live up to being a hero all of the time. You know, everybody has problems, but it, it creates more discord where then you have to justify the people on your side no matter what they're doing because they're on your side and you know i'm i'm sympathetic to one side usually more in any of these debates that's fine but if we lose our neighbor you know however much we disagree with them i'm, I'm trying to find the best way to put this we're just going to lose the skills that it takes to mm. make a family or a community we're going to keep getting this ideological lockstep that just gets smaller and smaller. And then people turn on each other for not being pure enough. It's so, it's so tiresome. And these communities can't create, they end up having to police their boundaries all of the time. And that's why these debates online go mm. on and on with nothing, making nothing beautiful, just so angry. That's all they have is this purity mm. of their boundary. And this isn't just going to stifle 
in air quotes, normal kids, but you look at, you know, autistic kids who one of the traits is literally a struggle to see in non-black and white. And we're literally, all our conversation online is black and white. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I don't know. It's, it's definitely an interesting age for discussing autism. Mm. Unfortunately, <laughs> it seems like they're coming into control and getting to see depth, that third dimension is um yeah the, really a challenge. The death the screen, of nuance. The, screen mm. the screen's flat. It doesn't give you that third quality. As you said, the headset is not the same as being able to go outside and play football for a little mm. while. I want to move on to something that we've spoken about earlier when it comes to this, you know, you spoke about delaying the choices and, and delayed adulthood is something that I think a lot of people my age are experiencing, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Now I'm... <laughs> I almost don't like the fact that I'm so self-aware of it because I feel a lot of anxiety in my life to sort it out. And I've sorted out a fair amount in other areas. You know, I'm pretty good in my housing situation. I'm pretty good in my job. I'm very good in my mental health. But what adds to that anxiety, it, it's, you know, it's so vivid everywhere around me. And, and we spoke about the economic reasons why women might not be able to have children or choose not to have children, sorry. So how do we tackle this for adults? Because delayed adulthood is... Again, I feel like a ticking time bomb for a lot of men and women. It goes back to what I said about meaning. The mental health is often a search for mm. meaning, a search for a framework to make sense of our suffering or our discomfort. And we live in the uh, sort of an acid, which is dissolving all meaning, dissolving our capacity for attention, dissolving our capacity to appreciate you know, in the past few years, it's accelerated beyond kind of even what I expected, just this erasure of the past, which is profoundly disorienting to anyone. I think for grownups who are sensing something is deeply wrong, the most important pivotal first step they can do is to sort of create a space in their head, which is not beyond the reaches of the culture. So to take, I sort of see a lot of strife coming. And if I was, you know, 25 years old and single, I would really be working to make a part of myself removed from these social media, TikTok things, which can literally impact your nervous system. Mm. They send your nervous system and your circulation moving in directions beyond your control. And so being able to get control of yourself and build a sort of immunity to this noise and chaos is the first step. And then once you have that place to pivot, <laughs> then you can um, start filling it with something good. But you can't fill it with something good if you are at the total mercy of TikTok. And you know, every time you leave the house, you're overwhelmed with noise and chaos. And you're like, oh, I got my friends on you know Instagram. I have to keep up with what they said. And oh my God, the new Taylor Swifty album is out and blah, 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 blah. You know, like, once you're on that, you've left you and you were just on stream of events. And then you're not going to be making any choices. We spoke earlier in the podcast about the importance of positive male role models, whether it's in teaching or as we're going to come to fathers and fatherlessness is an issue that I'm trying to talk about a lot more on the podcast. Obviously, you've got a great husband and father to your wonderful five children. But the importance of boys having a strong and present father, I don't think is being talked about enough. And, you know, authors like Warren Fowler have talked about this at length in The Boy Crisis, Jordan Peterson has, Richard Reeves. So 
I guess what I'm asking is from a female perspective, what is your take on it? Because some of those authors will get into hot water for even talking about this for some stupid reason. You know, it makes me want to bang my head on a wall because I feel like for 30 years, like since I was old enough to start picking up a magazine in the doctor's office and reading it, I've heard people saying we need strong fathers. Where have the strong fathers gone? And yet no one is doing anything about it. (laughs) You know, I go to library story time and I still see a mom wearing a shirt that says hex the patriarchy. You know, it's just, I'm so tired of it. Like we know that children need fathers. We know that. And yet every time someone has a choice, they're like, but I just have to slam the patriarchy one more time. please, please, it's a drug, give it up. You know, like, I was very lucky in that my dad was a wonderful role model for me. And my grandfather was a wonderful role model for me. And it just kills me seeing how many people are giving that up. And they are deriding the importance of it, marginalizing it, not doing what they can to boost that role. It's been my whole life, my whole adult life. And yet, where, where's the movement to actually give this kind of respect mm. to fathers? It's acknowledged, but I don't see it coming. I don't know how we build it coming except through individual choices. You know, my children's school has a father-daughter dance every year. Oh, that's nice. Which is not, it's not creepy. <laughs> I, know oh, there God. Are, I know there are the creepy ones, but it's, it's really not creepy. It's lovely. I think institutions that don't have an administrative chokehold on their ability to be flexible should really do what they can to promote activities for fathers and kids to celebrate them or say, hey, look, we're going to turn the gym over this weekend to all the dads who want to bring their kids to shoot hoops. You know, just anything they can to make a little space to give men more of an opportunity to interact freely with their kids and other kids. There's a lot of spicy paths we could go on this, but one I'm going to stick to is that there are two sides of this conversation here when it comes to solutions, right? And both are controversial in different ways. So where do we strike the balance between, on the one hand, saying to men, you need to step up, take responsibility, be a father for your child. Your child is for life, not for Christmas. But also, we shouldn't be, there's a kind of an argument that I sometimes see where it's like, we shouldn't be praising dads for being dads. That's their job. Versus on the female side, I probably couldn't say this, but women maybe say, choose the father of your children wisely. And if they are separated from the father and it, whatever way it ends up, whether it's infidelity or it's amicable, let your children see their father and let them be present and consistent. Consistency and letting the father be a part of the life. I mean, parental alienation. Oh my God. That's the ticking time bomb that's coming soon. Trust me. Unless the parent is a, uh, a threat to their child, there's no need for parental alienation. I was reading someone the other day said, well, you know, divorce is okay because what if two parents hate each other so much that they can't be around each other? And I thought, well, if they hate each other so much, like someone that they brought a child into the world with, how can these people be trusted with the child? I mean, how can they not get over this? Everything is just this inability to work together and honor one another's contributions, just this immediate, well, you didn't do what I like today, so I'm done with you. That will create a male rights activist, I tell you, in a sentence. <laughs> I'm sympathetic to a lot, of, a lot of it. I, it's undeniable. You know, I know that terrible things have been done to women, but it's important to remember that so much of this has been part of a larger mm. story, a larger narrative of um, change over the past few hundred years. You know, it's 
you drag men out of a home and put them in the mines, you know, like you're going to leave a lot of work on the woman's shoulders. It wasn't like all the men were going to offices to have cocktail hour. Mm. <laughs> that was not what it was like at all. But threading that needle is so hard. And I think there's always going to be people who aren't going to hear what you have to say. They're going to be sort of latched onto the chip on their shoulder and wielding that no matter what you do and saying, well, okay, that's great and all, but men really need to step up. Or I understand what you're saying, but females need to, you just have to go on a case by case basis and let the people who are going to, to bark, bark and let the caravan pass on. And that is the work that needs to be done by the caravan in this analogy is um, supporting people who are making the right decisions and honoring them and not being afraid of the stigma that comes when you say, you know, I don't think that's a great decision for your family or your kids. Mm. We spoke earlier in the pod about how we can help men and boys kind of find purpose and meaning. And I always speak about the three pillars that I think boys need, which is identity, purpose and belonging. If they have one of these, they can just about get by. If they have two of these, they can really do well. And if they have all three, they can thrive. But you said something to me very powerful off air. You, we were talking about how crap dating apps. It seems to me absolutely bane of my life right now. And uh, you said <laughs> men are being ghosted by society. Tell me what you meant by that. I believe that there are gifts that men and women have. And there is a masculine gift, m- multiple forms of gifts. And um, it can look a little different for each person as it should. But they have gifts of building and protecting, and our society has eliminated that role. You know, in America, the male gifts and the ways they gave those to their families and communities has been eliminated. The 20th century just saw a destruction of their jobs and their ability to contribute, the consolidation of farms, until they were rendered, you know, useless. They didn't have anything to contribute to their society. And at that point, the administrator steps in and the jobs are overseas and that man doesn't have any work to perform that's noble, except um, cleanup. You know, he can do a little construction as a, as a gift, as a treat. Giving men the opportunity to build, I think, is very important. I think those classes in the 1950s when you had men learning shop and learning work from another man were huge in giving men a sense of pride mm. and a sense of ownership of their body. And that's hugely important for men. I mean, they have so much muscle. They're so strong. They need to be able to channel that. A man who cannot channel his strength is dangerous. A, dangerous society. Yeah, yeah. a very real danger. And we have loads of men who are dangerous right now because they have all this energy, all this testosterone, and they've never been taught how to channel it in a purposeful, the, the word you use, purpose, a purposeful way. And then they've been told that they have no real belonging. You know, there, there's no need for them. And they just become angry and dangerous. It's a perfect recipe for disaster when um, social stress goes high, as we've seen over the past few years. Well, we're seeing it politically as well, because there's a really, well, interesting, but also very worrying trend emerging amongst young boys and young girls, whereby the former are increasingly moving to the right. And young girls are increasingly moving further and further to the left. Now, that's not good or bad in isolation, but it's the polarization that's really worrying here. And an article in an Even magazine kind of sources this. How much of that do you see it as a product of the culture wars, whereby maybe boys aren't as, say, receptive or they might see through 
gender identity politics or something like that, which is controversial, uh, whereas young girls may be more receptive to it? Or is there a completely different narrative I'm missing? No, I think you have a very good read on it. I think it's um, sort of the Achilles heel of the technocracy is that it rewards people who will look for safety in it. Um, and women who are unattached are going to look for safety from the state and from strong institutions. Does that come back and to activism, are, did you, like you mentioned before? Yeah. Yes, I think they're activists. It's easy to see activism as a form of resistance to the state, but it's very interesting that so much of it has been demanding more intervention from the state. Whereas the male capacity to create something is a danger to the state. And so you have, you know, boys being diminished from an early age, but eventually that they can feel that diminishment. Mm. They're like, they, they respond, they can read reality and they start saying, well, I'm not interested in what you're offering. The social contract has been revoked for me. And so now I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the Achilles heel that the state has left our weak spot, mm. our, our the hole in the dragon's armor. And I'm glad that hole is there but I'm also it's also very troubling mm. because there are so few leaders on uh I don't want to say on the right just few leaders who can inspire men with something life-giving as opposed to something with resentment cause mm. for resentment so you know <laughs> being able to move past that is crucial and we haven't gotten there you're completely right and I, I spoke about this with a previous guest called Dr Emily Setti who does a lot of research with young boys, especially around sexual consent and, and relationships. And some of the messages that, that she was getting off them was, as you said, they can see through a lot of this stuff. So when they're getting told you have male privilege or something like that, but they're working class boys, they're losing out to young girls. And young girls are smashing it, by the way, like West African girls are smashing in education right now. But when they're doing not as well across the board in certain areas, but then they're still getting told, they have all the power, they have all the privilege. That's not going to end well. It's amazing. It's amazing. I actually sometimes, you know, like I'll listen. It's happened a few times over the past few years where like I've heard a group of boys talking and I've been so impressed by them and so amazed by like their very calm, very calm and peaceful cynicism <laughs> that I've wanted to turn around and say, good job, boys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't, I'm, I'm like, oh, the last thing they need is some, you know, woman they don't know approving of them and taking away the thrill of being, of being uh, a rebel. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything. On the other side now, I'll let you lead this conversation rather than me. Where do you believe women are when it comes to feminism and the wider conversation about attitudes towards career, motherhood and everything in between? What you talked about earlier, the, the South Korea, Japan problem. Mm -hmm is going to be hitting very, very hard over the next five to 10 years. It's going to be a wake-up call for a lot of people. And in the same sense that we need to be prepared for this sort of male power emerging, this sort of discontent, there's going to be a female discontent mm. that's also going to be dangerous and threatening. Um, that's a grief, isn't it? That's like, the, that's like a dangerous grief, almost. Yeah. Yes, it's dangerous and it's... It, in more ways than we can imagine. Mm. I mean, you know, we see the demand for other people's children, the right to educate them, the right to steer them how they think they should be steered, resentment of the family unit, and lone, like a powerful loneliness that's, you know, regardless of anyone's resentment, we should all have sympathy mm -hmm. for. It's how are these people going to live? 
You know, they're going to be vulnerable. There's going to be a rising angry demographic. (laughs) And they've left themselves alone and isolated and with a sense of, some of them, profound regret. Mm. Those messages of smash the patriarchy, I think, will go pretty quickly once that grief takes over, isn't it? I do. All of this is dependent upon a very fragile model Mm. that can go very quickly. Reality reasserts itself. But unfortunately, the media is so strong. I don't think many people are thinking for themselves. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be that cavalier about it, but it's very easy to see someone say something one day and then the next year, the media has said something different and now they are parroting that. And you realize, oh, okay. So what we have here is a need to be part of a group and they don't want to ask their own questions because that could diminish their space in the group. And as long as that's a motive for so many people, and it has to be a motive in such a low trust society that you seek protection by being part of the group, then you're going to have these people looking to the media for their identity, for their beliefs, for their status, for their protection. So how do you give people a chance to opt out and feel safe in doing so? You have to provide safe havens for people to ask questions. And while there's a lot of true believers out there, I think there's quite a number of people who are seeing what's happening and are feeling skeptical. And you see that in the rise on Twitter and other places over the past few years of people, you know, they use pseudonyms, but are voicing and sort of creating new communities for people to exit. These are so important. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm very critical of social media. But every action has to have a reaction. And when you have such a spectacle in the form of our present media, you have to have some sort of release. Mm. Yeah, it's a very, I guess, cliche analogy. But as you said, there's a lot of sheep who are now, I don't know, turning into goats, maybe not wolves, but maybe maybe goats with horns, (laughs) if not wolves yet, because they're seeing, as you said, the kind of malaise of society on certain issues. These women are going to need images of how to be women again. (laughs) They've been um, taught how to be managers or administrators. I heard a comment the other day, which really blew my mind off. Someone said, um, no one wants to be a a wife anymore. We all want to be husbands. And I thought, ooh, ooh, (laughs) that's hard. Spicy. (laughs) (laughs) It was really spicy. And I thought, do I want to be a wife? (laughs) I know I'm married, but I was like, you know, I... What does it mean to be a wife? You know, the idea of submission is so shocking to us all. And it's shocking to me in some a lot of ways. But um, figuring out a, a better ways, imaging how to build partnership, how to be vulnerable with people, how to be intimate, how to trust, how to forgive people. So We've lost forgiveness, been, definitely. Yes. How to build those things. Those are critical to helping people see themselves as men and women as opposed to seeing themselves as the dreaded girl boss who has to be strong, who has to be empowered, who doesn't have that warmth or gentleness or the ability to slow down. I think a number of women are craving that, but they're going to need that safe space to express that and learn that because who's been taught that? Mm. (laughs) So few of us have. You spoke there about trying to recreate a vision of what it is to be a good woman or a good wife or whatever it is in inverted commas and one thing that i do credit jordan peterson and other male commentators in this sphere is that they are trying to do that for men now they don't always get it right and i don't agree with jordan peterson on everything but 
I agree with a lot of what he says and I found his books, you know, really inspiring. And I was already on my kind of way to self-actualization when I read the books, but they kind of strengthened it. We emphasized it, which was good. And I find it ridiculous that his book got so much controversy over such basic messaging oh yeah it was was wild i mean clean your room is good advice that people do need Mm. to hear Uh, so on the flip side then is there a vision in feminism to do the same thing for women or is that even anathema to say because there shouldn't be any there shouldn't be any vision for what there is to be a woman (laughs) (laughs) feminism in so far as it is a product of a certain group of people who live a certain lifestyle is a dead end. As long as feminism is the product of upper middle class women who are interested in themselves as individuals, you know, and their power as individuals, I don't believe in feminism. It's a dead, it's absolutely, it has nowhere to go, nothing to offer anyone. You know, it's completely in denial of reality. It's completely in denial of social classes and social needs. I don't know if you're familiar with Virginia Woolf's book, A Room of One's Own. I've heard of the book, but not read it, sadly. It's a very frustrating book because she says that to be a great writer, a woman has to have a room of her own and meals of her own and no servants. She was notoriously awful to her servants. Shock. Um, <laughs> and when I read it, I thought, what could I ever learn? I, mean, I, I, I do, do actually like much of Virginia Woolf's writing, but... um. I'm not going to learn any philosophy from this woman because she's completely in her own social class. She has Mm. no idea what being a woman means for her servants. It means something very, very different. And in the end, it becomes a sort of sterility. It's just about gaining power, consuming a vision of the universe, but it cannot sacrifice itself to give something to anything else, anyone else. I was talking to someone who works um, in USAID and they were complaining about the patriarchy in this Middle Eastern country, which is not a, a very severely... Um, I mean, like Iran, oppressive. that's probably true. <laughs> it was a different one. But they were complaining about women getting married young. And she said, oh, I just wish the women had more options. And I thought, well, maybe the men want more options too. But like, what did she want the women to do? Like be her housekeepers, her Uber... Like there's only so many administrative positions the liberation she wanted for these women was really just to cut them off from their communities and give them the option to eat, pray, love through the world. And in the end, this just, be- again, it becomes sterility. The kind of feminism that I think we want to imagine is one that's complementary, that works with men, that finds itself in a whole, the same way I think masculinity should find itself with women. Correct. If it doesn't find itself through marriage, then it grows by offering its capacity to nurture. Mm-hmm. For some women, that might be not the path they take. Maybe it's a more protective path. You know, you can think of someone like St. Hildegard of Bingen. You know, maybe she becomes the head of an ab- abbey. Um, maybe she's a little more masculine in some of her tendencies. That's, That's fine. fine. Masculine women are great. Yeah. But we're not asking everybody to be, you know, a milkmaid and prancing through the field. <laughs> like, just recognizing that we have gifts to give and that we should be treasuring the forces of life. Mm. <laughs> I'm speaking in my sort of new age speak and I don't want to go on like on a full religious theological bent, but anyone of any persuasion can do this, whether they're an atheist or a Buddhist, we can all be more gentle. And I think that's sort of the height of femininity is a gentleness with the world. I feel like there's a bit of a conflict emerging because, you know, 
I've got a lot of time for someone like Julie Bindle because I don't agree with everything she says, but I've got a lot of time for Julie Bindle. She's done a lot of work to protect women and girls. But I remember her saying something on the lines of, you know, men protecting women is a product of the patriarchy or something like that. But every man I have spoken to, specifically who have gone through maybe intense periods of grief, have all told me they have this biological, evolutionarily, psychological urge to look after the other members of their family who are going through that grief first rather than themselves. And I almost sense like they have a bit of anxiety about saying it. So how do we get back to that stage where they can feel comfortable doing that without feeling like it's, I don't know, wrong to do or just a bit cautious about doing? Wow, that's a really good question. (laughs) I think it's I I think it's related to what we said about trying to honor the role of the father. Mm. But um there's so much fear of masculinity mm. which is so sad and um <laughs> I'm so bowled over by your question. I'm sorry, trying to think of how to allow a man to express his need to protect his family. Is that where we're at really that it's that difficult that they feel that reluctance to share that yeah I, I definitely think it was a they, they shared it with me which I'm pleased that they did but I felt like it wasn't like a immediately prideful it was more like I just oh I just felt like I had to do it they obviously felt responsibility but I didn't sense that they were a hundred percent oh my god I was the first thing I was going to do was this it was like oh I felt like I needed to do it and but yeah let me ask you this mm-hmm. then we were talking about Louise Perry, and I'm I'm familiar with this from growing yeah. up on the maiden mother matriarch storyline, and that's helped a lot of women online. You know, who have not online, but you know, in their lives, they've shared it because it does give them a sense of okay, you know, like at this stage of my life, I'm a mother, and so it's okay to get down on one knee and say, "Oh my gosh, did you do you did you get a cut? You know, what do we need to go do?" What's the parallel for that for men? Because I'm not a man. What is that? Like, I mean, I think of Knights and Parzival and the Holy Grail stories, but like this, is it like a need to be like a, someone who's being mentored and then someone who goes on a quest and then someone who, like, what is, what is that? It's a really good question. And you know what? It, I responded to one of Louise Perry's tweets about this saying like, oh, I wish we could create a similar thing for men yeah. and I was trying to think of like the right wording like forager father something or other but I was going <laughs> made a matriarch is so much better a ring to it and it works so much better but I was trying to think of a good pathway but I think there's a Why? yeah I, I think there's a definite <laughs> desire to do that I as I've reached almost my 30th birthday in April I've definitely felt a desire to mentor people more and I've I kind of already doing that through vent but an even stronger desire to do that you know the younger lads coming up being able to pass on my wisdom and my advice and my experiences when I see young lads in the gym mucking about or doing something like really bad like form wise I've always got like an urge to go mate please correct your form or you'll break your back they're my training like <laughs> guys and we've all been like Fred they need to learn they need to learn I'm like oh I want to just I want to just change it so they they do it right <laughs> so I definitely feel that I definitely feel that and then getting older becoming a father and then taking on that grandfather role I think there is a similar path to mother made a matriarch but we we as lads need to work that out and be kind of really strong in how we feel about it and how we're gonna map out that path and help the young lads and you know the older lads help the younger lads and us maybe help the old lads as well see that 
Well, we talked about ritual earlier. When you have a ritual, you don't have to think about everything. It gives a sort of meaning to your days. And there's a saying that um, from Rudolf Steiner that rhythm replaces strength. So you might not have the strength every day. I might be too tired to do certain things, but I know as a mom, okay, I just, I get up and I do this and I go automatically. And having that framework for men, knowing, okay, like I've reached the point where I'm no longer the young adventurer, the, um, the hero in the story, but now I'm the older type of hero. And these are his responsibilities and they're different. And creating those archetypes so that men don't have to constantly be responding to what the world wants of them at that moment. Mm. And the world wants so many contradictory things. It wants men to be strong and also invisible. <laughs> it wants them to apologize. It wants them to apologize. English people are good at that. We say sorry before we even meet each other. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to say sorry yeah, immediately. Yeah. Sorry, mate. My name well, is. Like <laughs> That's genuinely sometimes how you do it. <laughs> I tease my husband about that. I think there's some joke on Roseanne where he's just like, just say sorry, just, just say it, just say it, just say it in the morning, just say it all day. It's like, oh no, that's the poor men. It's so it's, it's, yeah, we do do it a lot. But so I think I think having those archetypes take over so that these young men with this sort of channel who have all this energy can channel it into something creative in the next stage. If women are told, okay, now this is the the stage where you do this, well, now for men, this is the stage where you start instructing and reaping these benefits. You become the farmer in the fields, planting and bringing in this next crop. And it's a creative life-giving activity. I also think just my own perspective is that straight men in particular, I think really need women almost more than women feel they need men. My generation, I think, you know, you look at the narratives between a post breakup for a girl and a post breakup for a boy obviously both are very hard but with, with the girls you know there's a lot of emotional support and then it moves into like single liberated you know going on all the nights out like they all like they all should you know I'm not knocking it at all but for men it's a real trauma it's a real grief you know they might not want to speak to their mates about it you know that you might as a group of lads you might have to really force that guy out to just you know just come for a pint chat but doesn't have to maybe speak about the breakup. There's not a, you know, there was, I think a comedian made this joke. There's not loads of lads going, oh my God, I'm single again. Woo! Like, doesn't happen because most of the time, if they try to, most lads would be like, well, don't be cringe. But also you're definitely not feeling like that because I know you're not because you were crying on the phone to me last night. So I do agree with everything you said. And I also do think that because now we're getting to that stage where you know young men just aren't approaching women as much because there's that fear of the kind of overspill of me too there's also just young men not having as much sex you know I think this is all gonna become a cocktail of really problematic things in the future I'm glad my children are not in that age group right now but because <laughs> we're fucked <laughs> But the path out hasn't been found. No. And so is it only going to keep getting worse? You know, how you don't have children and hope that they end up lonely, you know, which is why I'm adamant about having them develop skills and activities now that will bring them a source of satisfaction so that they feel some sort of fulfillment in their life and not just like, oh my gosh, I'm bored and all the people online are crazy yeah. and I don't want to have a relationship with any of them. <laughs> And I go on the dating apps and everyone's crazy. Oh God, what do I do? I Let's reflect on your mental health journey, Tara. So first of all, what has it taught you about yourself? At first, the hardest things were to learn were that I am not perfect 
<laughs> as hard as that seems to believe. And that, um, that I needed to do a lot of work on myself. And then that is transformed into being something I'm excited about. You know, there's always something new for me to learn and work on. The more I take responsibility for my actions, the more space there is for me to give things to other people. So for each sort of way I see, oh, my my unhappiness here blocks this, or the stress I put on myself about this issue keeps me from being able to do this. And it gives you new opportunities all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to use a religious word here, but um, to sort of take on the cross. And then each time I take that on and I accept, okay, this is the burden of me, the burden of being in the world, the burden of our times. And then when you accept that, there's a grace to move past that and to sort of say, okay, now I'm going to do better. You know, I'm going to try and I'm going to fail and I'm going to try again. I don't know. I'm sorry. Sorry to bring religion. No, no, I love it. I talk to a lot of guests about faith. You know, I'm a, I'm, I have all sorts of perspectives on this podcast. I don't apologize by all means. <laughs> and as a final question before we move on, if you could go back and talk to Atara, who was maybe having to move away from her previous childhood home, feeling very traumatized about it, the Tara who was working with children for all of those years, having to develop that patience and that compassion, or the Tara who was about to become a mum for the first time, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? For the younger me's, the ones in my like say 20s. I would say wake up earlier. <laughs> I, say, I know it's silly. That's a universal say, rule. I would, say, I would say very practically, I would say, stop it. You're not a night owl. Stop indulging your emotions. Wake up early and start learning something and be productive. <laughs> I would have to give myself a kick in the pants. I'm sorry. You know, you're just wasting time is what I would say. For the younger me, I think for children, knowing that someone is there is the most important thing, someone who loves you. And so I would just sort of, remind myself to look at, you know, the love my father had for me and all the ways my mother was, you know, trying to do her best by me and to focus on those things and say, don't, don't be counting all the things they haven't done. Mm. You know, it's not perfect, but do, do be thankful for the things they have done. And for the Tara about to be a mom, I would say, <laughs> go have a good dinner and enjoy it out. <laughs> Make the most of it. <laughs> Of it. It's okay to stay home, but have have a really nice dinner out. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Tara, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about our mental health. So, firstly, how is your mental health? I have stresses. <laughs> I don't have enough time. I wish I had more time. I have to let that go every day. So. There's a little battle every day, but um, otherwise I would say very peaceful, despite the way the world is. <laughs> That's all I can ask for, Tara, to be honest. We live in interesting times, but it's there's excitement there to be had too. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Ooh, to some extent around seven or eight. Okay, I mean, so very young. I remember okay. thinking about my temper tantrums from when I was little. And finally, one day coming out of one and being like, I don't ever want to do that again. Like, I felt like I was held hostage by something. I was like, the next time I'm upset, I wanted to take deep breaths and go for a walk or something. I, I never asking my parents for ways to deal with it because I 
hated that. Wow. That's some serious level of self-awareness as an eight-year-old. Well, I, <laughs> I didn't like crying. I would get a headache. So I was like, how do I prevent this? Oh, the tension and the emotional release. Yeah, hate that. Tension headaches oh, yes. are the worst. Can you remember the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a weight had been lifted? Or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? Well, it's important for me to distinguish between childhood and being older. You know, as a kid, I went through a bullying phase. I was bullied pretty badly in school. Good, good, to, good to clarify that. <laughs> I hope I, 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 I take some pride in thinking I tried to be kind, but um, my mom would sit me down to talk about it, just to try to deal with my anger and try to get me to a place of forgiveness. It was useful, but I'm not sure how deeply I um, absorbed the entire process. And then probably when I was, when I was about 17 or 18, I remember talking to um, an elder at our church for a while. And I think that was sort of the first time I felt myself expressing, expressing myself in a way that I hadn't before. You know, I'd sort of fallen into a pattern as a kid, as some, someone's daughter, someone's granddaughter, as a friend, as a student, but talking to someone as a companion, as a fellow traveler in life was very different, but very helpful. Very, very unique. Mm. I recommend to sometimes to talk with a friend who's not there to diagnose you, but is there to listen um, and provide a little guidance is just unbelievably powerful. Well, listening is the key there. And you have to find the right person who can listen to you. Because sometimes you can, your best mates aren't the great well, listeners, but you're a great listener. And you've got to find other people to be the listeners. Absolutely yeah. true. If you find anything, what triggers your mental health so it could be things people say to you a sound a sensation or have you not figured all of them out yet or have any at all loud noises oh okay loud noises out of my control if i go to a gas station and loud music is playing bright lights it's very it's very autistic um <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that sounds autistic <laughs> i've become extremely overwhelmed by like fluorescent lights and we live near um right near a high school football stadium and they're great, but the youth team, they blare music for about 10 hours a day and I'll have tears in my eyes, you know, a dog barking. I really need silence. It's, I hope to get stronger enough to tune it out, but I also get annoyed. <laughs> so. Earplugs. Yeah. You should invest in some good earplugs. Know, but then you have to hear the kids, you know, you have to be able to oh, yeah. hear the kids. So. <laughs> Conversely then, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Going to church always helps and keeping it on a regular rhythmic basis so that I just, you know, sometimes you can fall out of the habit for a few weeks. But when you go back again, it's to know where I'm going and know what I'm doing is very helpful. I try to pray every night I don't read the news anymore before I go to bed. I put that away. I don't read anything that's going to upset me. And I try to focus on different people I've seen during the day, people I haven't met, and praying for their love, for their well-being. That is a key way for me to feel like I am doing something positive for other people and sort of giving a blessing to the world and releasing any tension or anger I have, um, sort of transmuting it. I may know the answer to this question based on what you just said, but what is the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Ooh, um, actually, it's not the Bible. Um, okay. <laughs> it's not, it, I'm sorry to say it. I read 
a wonderful book a few years ago called Lifting the Veil on Mental Illness by William Bento, which um, I could not recommend more highly to anyone. I think he gave me a way to understand mental illness and love and responsibility in a way which was very healing for me and not a source of stress or additional, I can be a perfectionist and melancholic personality. So being able to relax and identify my own need for perfection and let, let it go is very helpful. I've just Googled that book now to add to my 50 strong Amazon reading list. So there we go. <laughs> I found it. Oh, that would be adding to the list straight it's away. It's not long either. So. Oh, good. Because I'm currently reading Stephen Pinker's Brief History of Violence, Better Angels of Our Nature. It's 824 oh, pages, no. dense font. <laughs> I was I took a year and a half run up to read it and I was like, oh, God no. damn, I'm I'm reading this as an achievement in life now. <laughs> I've done a few of those. Oh my god. It's good, but my god, it's long. Longer. Oh, I can do twenty pa- I'm a quick reader and I can do twenty pages in an hour. Okay. That level length. Like density. Yeah. Well, you can use yeah. it as a good, you know, weight also while you yeah. something like that. It's not even a pa- it's a deadly weapon. It's not a paperweight. Exactly. If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Love is responsibility and responsibility is love. And I I say that because I think free will is what makes us people and not animals. And love from a robot means nothing. And love without responsibility is just self-indulgence. Realizing that when we do something like clean up our room, we're showing love. When we, you know, change our child's diaper, we're showing love. When we drive our child somewhere, we're showing love. When we, you know, stop and hold the door open for an older person, we're showing love. All those ways of taking responsibility for other people is a form of love. And that's really inspired by Pope John Paul II's book, Love and Responsibility. I don't know if you're familiar with Dostoevsky, but his character of Father Zosima in um, The Brothers Karamazov is all about we have to take responsibility Mm. for each other. Much quoted that book. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Much Not that I'm trying to heap a burden on anybody. <laughs> There's yeah. also a lot of stresses. So I don't want to make people feel like they're responsible for everybody. Well, Jordan Peterson has a rule about assuming responsibility where there's a vacuum. So he may have nicked it from John Paul II, (laughs) thinking about it. So who knows? Maybe. I've got two questions left. The first one is, what do you love about yourself? I am very proud that I keep seeking You know, sometimes I'll reach an answer and a few times in life I've gotten a little dogmatic about an answer I think I found, but I'm very receptive to looking at evidence that I'm wrong and then learning something new and going past it without stopping myself with guilt or, oh no, I can't be wrong. You know, I've Mm. been able to say, oh no, I got that wrong. I have to adjust. Yeah, Adam Grant wrote a very, very good book on this, which I would recommend to any of the listeners. I read it recently and it's called Think Again, The Power of Being Wrong, which I absolutely loved. I'm, very not, much I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised, but when to be able to let go of being right all the time is very liberating. Yes. Yeah, He you, there's a, a story he quotes where I think it's either him presenting or it's someone presenting a presentation and a professor like comes up to them and says, Oh, I really enjoyed that. I was wrong and laughed and like that kind of owning your shit. Like yeah, I was yeah. like laughed about it. Like, oh, I was wrong about that. It's great. Like I try and take that attitude now. Sort of own your shit. If you're wrong, accept it, laugh about it, move on. Exactly. And as a final question, I've absolutely loved this conversation, Tara. What more do you think we have to do 
to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it. When you ask a good question, I like to think for a moment. I'm sorry. I'll leave this in. I think, to be honest, there's a lot of things we can do, but the individual reaction, that first reaction we have to somebody, it's going to sound so trite in a world where there's so much misuse of this word, but to not be judgmental. When someone's first coming to you with something, they may be admitting this for the first time, not knowing how to frame it to themselves, not knowing how to understand it, for people to be able to have that sense of trust with you because you've been gentle with them. Mm, Massive for men. Massive for men. It's pivotal. Trust disclosure. I I read someone the other day saying, I brought something to my wife and she laughed. Like, you know, you, (sighs) you, you, you just can't do that. Like, no matter how tempting it is or how silly you find something, like I know that in my life, you know, once or twice someone has brought something to me and I was like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> like I was much younger then, but now I realize, oh no, no, no. Like even if I don't understand it, like when my child comes to me with something that might not make sense to me, but they're trying, they're being vulnerable with me. So I need to give them that trust to say, okay, I don't understand this yet, but at least we're talking about it. That's it. Just, put away my judgment for a moment because I, this person and me don't understand what's going on yet. And we're going to have to work it out together. That's a brilliant way to end. Tara, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Freddie. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Tara for being my special guest and for letting me check in with her. I will, of course, put Tara's social media handles in the show notes if you want to follow her musings, which are always excellent. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying please give this podcast a share on social media if you enjoyed it. Please tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, give us a rating and five star review on Apple Podcasts. Help us out with those algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ventshelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.